If history would be taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Rudyard Kipling We are, as a species, addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. Jonathan Gottschall Story, as it turns out, was crucial to our evolution, more so than opposable thumbs. Opposable thumbs let us hang on. Story told us what to hang on to. Lisa Cron. Hello, and welcome to the Fundamentals of Nonsense. I am your host, Sam, and this is my co-host. Ah, shit, that's right, I'm all alone today. Uh, anyways, Sonny has some personal business he had to take care of this week, but he'll be back next week. However, uh, this week, we will discuss the evolution of storytelling throughout history, from our ancient ancestors walking a very dangerous planet, to the first printing press, to visual storytelling, and the strategies of journalism. Now, to better understand the very core of why human beings are so intrigued by storytelling, we have to travel back to the very first humans on Earth, whom eventually developed very potent self-preservation skills, mainly in the form of threat analysis. I mean, what kind of news or stories do you think the early humans were reporting to each other? Exactly. Danger. And was probably along the lines of animals capable of devouring people, or dangerous terrain. But then again, they didn't have much else to discuss. And presumably most of this communication came in the form of grunts and hand gestures and body language, but we are now the hereditary owners of this ancient cognitive danger radar. In 2001, researchers Paul Rosen and Edward Poisman coined this cognitive function as the negativity bias, explaining that we, as people with these incredibly complicated brains, are impacted dramatically more by negative events in comparison to positive events of the same magnitude. This leads us to reflecting on negative memories much more vividly than positive ones. It's also why our vocabulary is much more colorful when describing events of negative or traumatic impact. This in turn goes hand in hand with another human function called loss aversion. This is what keeps humans in safe, complacent environments. This is simply the cognitive function that causes us to dislike losing what we already have in comparison to investing or gambling on something we might get even if the odds are slightly in our favor. Remember these properties of the mind for later, because they're going to show back up, I promise. But for now, let's dip our toes in a little bit of history. Now, we can't really put a date on the first events of oral storytelling, but we can assume that we were pretty good at warning each other about danger. I mean, we survived, right? But visual storytelling can be traced back as far as 36,000 years ago, roughly. In 1994, three speleologists, or cave explorers, discovered the Chauvet Cave in southeastern France. After they removed the rubble blocking the entrance and traversed the landscape of this ancient hole in the ground, they found some of the most vivid examples of cave art. Now, these drawings were remarkably well done. The walls were clean, revealing a smooth, brighter surface to draw upon, and some even had etchings around the animals to give the artwork a near 3D appearance. And on these cave walls were hundreds of animal paintings, displaying at least 13 different species of animals. While horses and mammoths were displayed there, so were many drawings of predatory animals like cave lions, bears, and hyenas. I would assume this also goes hand in hand with that threat assessment or brain processes, potentially a warning symbol for others to recognize what animals in the region are dangerous and cataloging them at the same time. Also in this cave is believed to be the very first depiction of volcanic activity. So we now shift to the Sumerians, who are believed to have 
developed the very first human civilizations in world history, dating back just over 7,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia. They're also believed to have developed the first written language known as cuneiform around 3400 BC. The Tablet of Kish, which was found in the ancient Sumerian city of Kish, which is modern-day Iraq, somewhat solidifies this as it dates back to around 3500 BC, but is viewed as the transitional period between pictographs and the written language they would go on to develop. After that, we get the instructions of Shurapak, a wisdom literature tablet dating back to around 2600 BC. After being completely translated, we know that that contains philosophical advice such as never buy a donkey that brays too much, never stick around or watch a fight or let yourself get into a fight, and never curse too strongly or it will rebound on you. More self-preservation text. The Egyptians then developed a more practical media for writing around 2400 BC after they found a process to extract marrow from papyrus reeds. Then, through a process of humidification, drying, pressing, and gluing, created the precursor to parchment. Most papyrus was in the form of scrolls, typically around 10 plus meters long, capturing stories in a simplified version of hieroglyphics, and eventually was exported to other civilizations such as Rome and Greece, causing literature to grow extensively and leading to the expanse of actual literacy and the development of libraries. Around the first century CE, China came along and invented paper. And somewhere during the Tang Dynasty, the first printing of books in the form of scrolls began in China, which the first major production is titled The Diamond Sutra, and it's a Buddhist text promoting the experience of reality as it is, and living without attachment. And somewhere between the 2nd and 4th century, the scroll was replaced by the codex, and you no longer had to unroll your books to read them. The fine-tuning for the anatomy of books that happened during this period is still the standard that we use to this day. Things like capital letters, spacing, punctuation, table of contents, etc. In 11th century Spain, we find the development of water-powered paper mills, proving to be less labor-intensive and inflated the amount of production they could achieve greatly, and becomes the standard for copies of text, while parchment is saved for the more special occasion documentations. In the 12th century, around the first universities in Europe, paper began to be used as means to create specialized and general text. Basically, this is where textbooks for schools were born from. Writing became more common, and simpler vernaculars were developed for those who lacked high levels of education, allowing poetry and novels to come to life, and thus the occupation of bookseller is also born. In Germany, around 1440, the printing press was invented by one Johannes Gutenberg, Again, massively increasing production quantities of text. By the 16th century, Europe had printed somewhere between 150 to 200 million volumes of text. This ability to mass-produce and share information across borders without censorship during the Renaissance period in Europe led to the creation of the middle class, now that the literacy walls were being knocked down between the elite and the common, and in turn threatened the power of the political and religious authorities, which kind of seems like a pretty common event when the level of education rises in population, but that's neither here nor there. By the mid-17th century, the printing press finally arrives in North America, mainly due to the demand for Bibles and various other religious texts. As this developed into a more common medium for information, we title it, as we all know today, the press. Newspapers appeared in the 16th century in Europe and arrived in the colonies in 1690, but failed due to their controversial nature. About 14 years later, they reemerge, and in 1722, James Franklin uses his newspaper to accuse the colonial government of not protecting its citizens from pirates, which landed him in jail. 
Upon being released, it was deemed that if his company were to publish any papers, they would have to be reviewed by the government first, leading James to immediately hand his newspaper company over to his brother, Benjamin Franklin. In 1733, the New York Weekly Journal was founded by John Peter Zenger, who would go on to criticize William Crosby, who was the new colonial governor, for replacing members of the New York Supreme Court because he couldn't control them. This also led to Zenger's arrest. After eight months, he was on trial with his lawyer, Andrew Hamilton, who was successful in convincing the jury to ponder the idea of the truth, and if what had been printed was actually fact. The jury returned with a not guilty verdict, against the wishes of the judge. This led publishers to know now that they could post truthful criticisms without the fear of persecution, and throughout the Revolutionary War was a conduit for political information. In 1791, America adopted the First Amendment, guaranteeing freedom of press, but by 1798, Congress passed the Sedition Act after harsh partisan criticism. This in turn banned writing false or malicious text about the government. However, in 1800, Thomas Jefferson was elected president and allowed the Sedition Act to lapse, believing that freedom of press and government could exist together, and we still to this day have this freedom, to a degree. In the late 1800s, Joseph Pulitzer developed a new form of journalism that we know to this day as yellow journalism, which pretty much focuses on stories formed around crime, violence, sex, and emotion, and actually gets its name from a comic strip called The Yellow Kid that would appear in these sensationalistic-style papers. They would create large headlines, conveying graphic and sometimes untrue details to the stories they were trying to sell. Pulitzer would go on to employ the first stunt journalist, her name was Elizabeth Cochran, but operated under the pseudonym Nellie Bly, which might sound familiar. She wrote her first article on the Blackwell Island, a New York City insane asylum. She feigned insanity and was committed. She then recounted her events in her story, 10 Days in a Madhouse, and it was a brilliant move, launching her career. So we can now reflect on the negativity bias a bit, about how the gravity of negative or tragic stories and headlines reel us in like bugs to a light. We are conditioned to analyze anything threatening and catalog it. But we do this to a flaw when we consume media, often sensationalizing conspiracy and or flat-out false information. Fake news is so successful in its targeting campaigns because we are cognitively wired to react when we see the outrageous. This is why clickbait, lies, and violence are always more consumed instead of educational information or positive stories. Humans are weird. Anyways, let's move on. Visual storytelling creates a bit of a different perspective. In a 2017 TED Talk, David J.P. Phillips theorizes that storytelling is actually science, breaking down why visual stories are so impactful, why you can watch a movie with your favorite hero and want to dress and walk and talk like them, concluding that this form of storytelling creates an emotional investment caused by a series of chemical reactions in your body. First is dopamine, increasing your focus and excitement, Second is oxytocin. This helps you trust and bond with a character or narrator, showing empathy and ambiguity. And third are endorphins. These are the natural neurochemicals that make you feel high and happy. So if you write your story with the proper amount of excitement, tragedy, and fun, you should be capable of causing these reactions in your target audience. This is why you, yourself, get excited for the next episode of your favorite show or the next large blockbuster Marvel movie. Emotional investment. The first feature film was a 60-minute silent movie called The Story of the Kelly Gang in 1906, followed by another silent film called Les Miserables in 1909. 
After a handful of movies were released with synchronized audio, came the 1927 film The Jazz Singer, which is heralded as the first all-talking feature. Thus is born the golden age of Hollywood. In 1932, an audio-visual colorized enhancement arrived, in the form of Technicolor 4, and contributed to films such as The Wizard of Oz and The Trial of the Lonesome Pine. And we now had fully colorized talking films. So I'll pick this topic back up in the future. I still have mountains of material to gather information from, but I, I wrote this piece with very little time. And I apologize for the short episode too, but things will get back to normal next week. Thank you for listening. And we still love you both, or whatever.